Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. Systems, this is ACS1. Um, our attitude control error is um, is starting to to be more active, and uh, we are in the atmosphere. So at 23, I really believe that the scriptures were written thousands of years ago by these fishermen that had no education. And here I was, this aerospace engineer. How can I be subject to their wisdom? I really felt like I knew more than them. And by proxy, I, I knew more than God because we only know God by the writings of people like these fishermen. I work full-time for NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, or JPL as it's known. It's the NASA Center in Pasadena. My first job at JPL was commanding a spacecraft that was flying around Saturn. It's the only spacecraft that has ever flown around Saturn. And we were incredibly meticulous in the development and the design and the simulation and analysis. And just that mindset kind of permeates an engineer's lifestyle, never taking anything on faith, analyzing and proving everything before you accept it. And so you can imagine how that, in some regard, is totally opposite of the Christian lifestyle, which arguably requires a fair amount of faith. I thought I was a very devout Christian. I would go to church on Sabbath. I would do the Sabbath school quarterly. And I got to my early 20s, and I realized that I wasn't happy in church. I was living a life where I was resenting God, or even the idea of God, as more so like a, a set of rules that the pastors and my parents and the church leaders were telling me I need to obey. And I started wondering if I'm gonna ruin my life by making decisions, trying to please this imaginary God, instead of living life the way I wanna live, the way that it makes me happy. So I left church and I pursued that happiness, that freedom that the world offered me uh, for about four years. So I made friends in, in the world. I went to parties. I experimented with alcohol. Thankfully, I never experimented with drugs, although I did have plenty of friends that did do those kinds of things. And we would be in the same parties, and they'd be using drugs. And I was also uh, resentful of the people in the church because I never really felt welcomed by them. And when I was leaving the church, I expected them to reach out and, and help me. And so that cemented my decision that this whole religion thing is, is false. Otherwise, they would have a transformed heart and they would be 
more caring about the members of the church. Towards the end of those four years, I realized that I was no better off in terms of happiness than when I was in church. In certain ways, I was actually more unhappy now that I was outside of church. I started wondering what went wrong in that original relationship that I had with God in my early 20s. And God had let me down despite me being this perfect Christian, going to church every Saturday and obeying the commandments and doing the quarterly. I realized that I had just been checking the boxes as requirements because I felt like I had to, not because I wanted to. And then I realized that I had been living a double life as a Christian. I was going to church Saturday in the morning, and then Saturday night I was doing things that I knew were not pleasing to God. And so what right did I have to blame God for the problems and the unhappiness in my life at 23 years of age? How can I blame him for the failure of our relationship when my heart was not in it. I started opening myself up to the idea of possibly going to church again. And around that time, a friend invited me out to one of the churches in this area and told me that the community here is much more welcoming. So reluctantly, I gave it a shot. I came out to church. I was, you know, surrounded by everybody worshiping and singing and praying, and I felt nothing. I felt silly. But the next week, I tried again and still felt nothing. But one night, I was praying, and I realized that I had not fully put aside my own pride. I was still feeling that I was more intelligent than God, that I knew better than God about what is right for my life. And I admit that I am not more intelligent than you. And so if it's your will, please help me. I would say that my heart was a heart of stone, as the scripture says. And the most amazing thing happened when I started praying wholeheartedly and really connecting with God like I had never done before. My heart started softening. And at that point, I remember not feeling the need anymore to have a physical, tangible miracle like what we read in the Bible. I used to want God to part the sea right in front of me so that I could believe in him. And after I, I saw that change in my heart and that peace that I got that I, that I couldn't find, that was the only miracle that I needed. The things that I used to see as chains and rules and regulations, like you have to go to church on Saturday, now were I get to go to church on Saturday. When I was younger, I would question, why is it that the Bible tells us that it's not good to get drunk or have sex with as many people as you want? But I realized that God isn't writing down these, these rules to make our lives harder, but because he knows that the consequences of doing those actions just bring us a lot of pain and emotional scarring and uh, unhappiness and depression ultimately. I would say I'm still definitely on a journey. I still have my ups and downs and at times I also feel like I'm going further away from God. Sometimes I feel closer, but I know I'm in it for the long run with God and I'm just gonna keep on fighting to hopefully one day be the Christian that, that God wants me to be.
If this is your first Sabbath with us at camp meeting, you missed something we're going to do each week. We've adopted as our North Star passage for this series, 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to ask if you would be willing to stand with me. We're going to put it up on the screen, and we're going to recite it together because it captures the ethos that we need to have as we seek to share our faith. Ready? Let's read it together. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then, if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Amen. You may be seated. A manager is interviewing for a new position. He has an intern that is shadowing him that day. The last three candidates, he tells the intern, I want you to sit in with me and learn. First candidate comes in and the manager asks, how much is two plus two? Four. Thank you very much. Once the candidate leaves, the manager turns to the intern and said, did you notice that clarity, that precision, that immediate response? That's very good. Second candidate, how much is two plus two? Thought about a minute and said, uh, six. Thank you very much. Dismissed him. Did you notice the out-of-the-box thinking, the possibilities? Things are bigger. That's very good. Third candidate, how much is two plus two? A look of consternation and uncertainty, and then suddenly the gleam of a dream in the candidate's eyes, he said, eight. Thank you very much. Dismissed him. The sky is the limit with that candidate. It's incredible. Who knows to what heights we could go with a person like that? Now he said to the person shadowing him, who am I going to hire? The intern thought of me and said, well, I guess that third one, you seem pretty excited about all that sky's the limit stuff. He said, nope, hiring the second one. Why are you hiring the second one? Because he's my wife's sister-in-law, brother-in-law. <laughs> now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, that's not fair. That's not fair. Everybody should get an equal chance. None of this back around the corner stuff, none of that. Everybody should be judged on their own merits. That's not fair. So my question for you is, how do you know that's not fair? Where is it written that that's not fair? Who decides that that's not fair? You'll come back to me with labor and law and say, well, look, it says right here, that's not fair. Well, where did they get that? Who ultimately made that decision? Who decides what's fair and not fair, just and unjust, right and wrong? Who makes that decision? Now, before you answer, let me remind you where we are. We're in a series. We're echoing Shakespeare's Hamlet with our title, To Believe or Not to Believe, That is the Question. We're asking, are there credible reasons for belief in God? 
So last week, we looked at the skies above us. This week, we look to the world within us. I want to share with you the words of Immanuel Kant, arguably one of the greatest philosophers of all time, German philosopher. Kant simply said this, Two things fill me with constantly increasing admiration and awe. The longer and more earnestly I reflect on them. The starry heavens without and the moral law within. Kant. Awe. Admiration. The starry heavens without and the moral law within. So just what is that moral law that filled Kant with awe and admiration? In my humble opinion, the biblical writer who speaks most most clearly to that is the Apostle Paul. He does so in Romans chapter 2. I want to read just two verses in the context of what Paul is writing. He's writing about the law of God. He's writing about the righteousness of God. He's writing about knowing God's character and, and will. He's saying God is not a respecter of persons. God doesn't play favorites. And then right in the middle of that discussion, he parenthetically makes a statement. In fact, so parenthetical is the statement that in the NIV, they actually put it in parentheses. But it's between those two parentheses that Paul says something of which we ought to take note. Romans chapter 2, we start in verse 14. He says, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience is also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. Did you notice the kind of words that Paul uses? Do by nature A law to themselves, consciences. He's talking about something that is contained within people who have no knowledge of the law of God that Paul is discussing. Now that only becomes more clear if we read Eugene's paraphrase, the message of the same verses. Notice how Peterson renders these verses. When outsiders who have never heard of God's law follow it more or less by instinct... They confirm its truth by their obedience. They show that God's law is not something alien imposed on us from without, but woven into the very fabric of our creation. There is something deep within them that echoes God's yes or no, right and wrong. Peterson's words are even more potent. Something woven into the very fabric, he says, of our creation. Kant says, the starry heavens above, the moral law within. Even people who don't know anything about God or may say, we don't believe in God. Now, are we making too much of what the apostle says here? Well, listen to the words of New Testament scholar Clinton Arnold as he writes about this very passage. Arnold says, Paul's language appears to allude to a widespread Greco-Roman tradition about the, quote, unwritten law, close quote. Stoic philosophers especially developed the notion of a universal moral standard rooted in nature. 
Hellenistic Jews, like the Alexandrian philosopher Philo, applied this notion to the Mosaic law. Quote, All right reason is infallible law, engraved not by this mortal or that, and thus perishable, nor on lifeless parchment or slabs, and therefore soulless as they, but immortal nature on the immortal mind never to perish. That's Philo. Arnold continues, following this tradition, Paul claims that non-Christian Gentiles, even though they may never have heard of the law of Moses, have in their very natures created by God knowledge of the rights and wrongs that the law of Moses ultimately points to. They will therefore do things that the law of Moses itself demands, such as refraining from murder and adultery, honoring their parents, and so on. These universal moral absolutes reveal that all people have access to a knowledge of God's moral will. So what Kant speaks of, the moral law within, what Paul writes about, to, to quote Peterson, woven into our very fabric, the thinkers of Paul's day were saying there is something in there that goes beyond the boundaries of people who may know and love God. It seems woven within us to know what's right and what's wrong. To be able to say, look, if you're going to hire your brother-in-law, that's wrong. How do you know? Who decided that? Thinkers throughout time would answer, there is something woven into the fabric of the human being that collectively tends to know. Did anybody teach your little three-year-old when she got a smaller piece of cake to say, that's not fair? Who taught her that? So we're asking the question, to believe or not to believe? Are there credible evidences for the existence of God? So I want you to listen to Francis Collins. We talked briefly about him last week. Francis Collins, the, the head of the Human Genome Project. Francis Collins, a scientist with a devout belief in God. Collins affirmed some understandings and conclusions about science with which many of us would have some strong differences, but he's deeply worth listening to, particularly when he talks about his journey to faith. He was a young physician seeing patients, and he noticed that his patients had certain beliefs that he tended to brush aside. He had been agnostic. He had now moved to atheist. But he had these patients who were talking about God, praying, and then they asked him questions. Doctor, what do you believe? He began to realize he'd never really examined that. One patient in particular so disturbed him that it drove him to say, I've got to settle this. He ultimately ended up in the office of a Methodist minister asking, is there any evidence for belief in God? The minister went over to his shelf and took a book off the shelf written by the eminent Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis, the title of which was Mere Christianity. I'm going to read, and I'm going to read a bit. Because I think it's much better to hear this in Collins' own words. So we pick up Collins there at that point in the story as he's reading Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Collins writes, 
The argument that most caught my attention and most rocked my ideas about science and spirit down to their foundation was right there in the title of book one, quote, right and wrong as a clue to the meaning of the universe, close quote. While in many ways the moral law that Lewis described was a universal feature of human existence, in other ways it was as if I was recognizing it for the first time. To understand the moral law, it is useful to consider, as Lewis did, how it is invoked in hundreds of ways each day without the invoker stopping to point out the foundation of his argument. Disagreements are a part of daily life. Some are mundane, as the wife criticizing her husband for not speaking more kindly to a friend, or a child complaining it's not fair when different amounts of ice cream are doled out at a birthday party. Other arguments take on larger significance. In the area of medicine, furious debates currently surrounded the question of whether or not it is acceptable to carry out research on human embryonic stem cells. Some argue that such research violates the sanctity of human life. Others posit that the potential to alleviate human suffering constitutes an ethical mandate to proceed. Notice that in all these examples, each party attempts to appeal to an unstated higher standard. This standard is the moral law. It might also be called the law of right behavior, and its existence in each of these situations seems unquestioned. What is being debated is whether one action or another is a closer approximation to the demands of that law. Those accused of having fallen short, such as the husband who is insufficiently cordial to his wife's friend, usually respond with a variety of excuses why they should be left off the hook. Virtually never does the respondent say, forget your concept of right behavior. What we have here is very peculiar. The concept of right and wrong appears to be universal above all among all members of the human species, though its application may result in wildly different outcomes. It thus seems to be a phenomenon approaching that of a law, like the law of gravitation or of special relativity. But is this sense of right and wrong an intrinsic quality of being human or just a consequence of cultural traditions? Some have argued that cultures have such widely differing norms for behavior that any conclusion about a shared moral law is unfounded. Lewis, a student of many cultures, calls this, and then he quotes Lewis, a lie, a good resounding lie. If a man will go into a library and spend a few days with the Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics, he will soon discover the massive unanimity of the practical reason in man. From the Babylonian hymn to Samos, from the laws of Manu, the Book of the Dead, the Analects, the Stoics, the Platonists, from Australian Aborigines, he will collect the same triumphantly monotonous denunciations of oppression, murder, treachery, and falsehood, the same injunctions of kindness to the aged, the young, and the weak, of almsgiving and impartiality and honesty. So what is Lewis, what is Collins saying? That on balance, if you look at humanity around the globe and throughout time, there is a consistent, there is a persistent thread that weaves its way through culture after religion, after continent, after people, in which so many of the th same things are counted right and so many of the same things are counted wrong. And the question is, how do you know? 
To what standard are you appealing? Who said murder is wrong? Who said falsehood is bad? Who said adultery ought not be? Who said that? And yet throughout time, around the globe, people are remarkably sensitive to such. And the great philosopher Immanuel Kant says, Two realities cause awe and wonder and admiration. The more I consider them, the starry heavens above and the moral law within. So Collins goes on in his journey to deal with some of the objections to the moral law. And then he says this. If the law of human nature cannot be explained away as a cultural artifact or evolutionary byproduct, then how can we account for its presence? There is truly something unusual going on here. To quote Lewis, if there was a controlling power outside the universe, it could not show itself to us as one of the facts inside the universe. No more than the architect of a house could actually be a wall or a staircase or a fireplace in that house. The only way in which we could expect it to show itself would be inside ourselves as an influence or a command trying to get us to behave in a certain way. And that is just what we find inside ourselves. Surely this ought to raise our suspicions. Encountering this argument, says Collins, at age 26, I was stunned by its logic. Here, hiding in my own heart, as familiar as anything in daily experience, but now emerging for the first time as a clarifying principle, this moral law shone its bright white light into the recesses of my childless atheism and demanded a serious consideration of its origins. Was this God looking back at me? Colin says, I experienced this every day. And suddenly I started asking much deeper questions. My scientific mind started asking much deeper questions. Finally, among other credible arguments for the existence of God, it was the existence of this moral law that was most compelling for Colin. Last quote from him. I had started this journey of intellectual exploration to confirm my atheism. That now lay in ruins as the argument from the moral law and many other issues forced me to admit the plausibility of the God hypothesis. Faith in God now seemed more rational than disbelief. This law to which he had never given thought, but had obeyed, became the most compelling piece of evidence for the existence of God. Is it possible that we actually obey laws that we never thought about and couldn't even say where we learned them? So let me ask you about this. Here's a quote-unquote law. I didn't even know about it till I was doing research for the sermon. I doubt I'm alone. It's called a blot reduplication. 
a blot reduplication. You'll see the words on the screen because it's such an unusual term. A-B-L-A-U-T reduplication. So what is a blot reduplication? Well, as I understand it at this point, here's what it is. It's a rule of grammar that says when you have a second word like the first word in which you only shift one vowel, there's a certain order in which that always happens. I always comes before A or O. How many of you have heard of a blot reduplication? But you all obey it. You say flip-flop, not flop-flip. You say tit-for-tat, not tat-for-tit. You say criss-cross, not cross-criss. You say hip-hop, not hop-hip. It's all over. As you become aware of it, you suddenly realize, I don't know where I learned that. Nobody ever told me that, but that's what I do. That's how I speak. Wish-wash, not wash-wish. The moral law. Colin said, I, I began to understand. I lived by it every day, and so did people around the globe and throughout time. It became to me the most compelling evidence. But, but, a lot of us are like kids. You ever notice that? Teacher leaves the room and says to Susie, you, You're in control here, you take down any names cause any trouble and Susie starts writing out every name in the room and you know what the attitude of the other kids is you're not the boss of me you are not the boss of me they push back they get angry Susie's not telling us what to do in some ways I wonder if we ever outgrow that in fact I want to say how much I appreciated Luis in today's video and his candor for what may be common for many. I thought I was smarter than God. I appreciate his candor at being open because some of us may have thought that. Some of us may not have thought it, but we've lived it. We're saying to God, you're not the boss of me. I don't care if there is a moral law within. I'm going to choose to do what I want to do. So I want to take a quick look at one example of what happens when an entire society takes that approach toward God, toward the moral law within. You're not the boss of me. It is what I consider to be the most horrific story in the entire Scripture. It's in the Old Testament book of Judges, the last three chapters. Brief thumbnail sketch. Certain Levite has a concubine, a common-law wife. He's on a trip with her and with one of his servants. They have to stay in a town for the night. He will not stay in any town unless it's an Israelite town. So they end up in an Israelite town. They go to the square where it would have been common for them to have been taken into a home because of the hospitality of the day. They're not taken in for a long time until an old man totters by on a cane and says, has no one invited you home? No one. Then come to my house because it's not safe out here. And so they go. While they're eating supper, a mob with very nefarious motives in mind bangs on the door. Here's what happens. Judges 19, verse 22. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house, pounding on the door. They shouted to the old man who owned the house, 
bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them. And they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn, they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her husband was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. Unspeakable. Cultures around the world and throughout time would respond by saying, That's horrible. What is heartless in the extreme is what happens next. Verse 27, when her master got up in the morning, you slept? When the master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. Get up. Let's go. Are you kidding me? He slices her dead body into 12 pieces, sends one to each of the 12 tribes of Israel, says, this is what has happened among us. They immediately cry out, you have to bring the perpetrators and we will give them justice. They refuse to do it. And by the end of the story, there has been war. Thousands of people have died. And we end up reading something like that and we say, what in the world is that doing in the Bible? It's horrible. And yet we have a clue. Because of a phrase that bookends the story. It's there when the story begins. It's there when the story ends. And then the story adds one more phrase to it. So at the beginning of the story, you have the phrase, and then the narrator launches right into the story. Here it is, Judges 19.1. In those days, Israel had no king. Now Levite, who lived in the remote area in the hill country of Ephraim, took a concubine from Bethlehem and Judah, and the story goes on. But it starts out by saying there was no king, there was no central authority, there was no governing structure, there was no one to say, you can't do that, that's wrong. And then the story. And then you come to the end of the story. It's not only the end of the story, it's the last verse in the book of Judges. Chapter 21, 25, here's what it says. It adds a phrase in this place. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. No governing structure. No sense of right and wrong. So they did, they say it in Spanish, hicieron lo que les daba la gana. They did everything that they felt like doing. Whatever they wanted to do, everyone did as they saw fit. Because as Paul himself will say in the New Testament, there's a battle within each one of us. Whatever has been woven into our fabric when we were created in the image of God 
has been marred, has been defaced by sin. And when everyone does just exactly what they see fit, what they want, whatever might be driven by their most base urges and instincts, chaos results. When we say, you're not the boss of me, I'm not going to be attentive to some transcendental divine supposed being in the sky. I'll do what I want. You have judges. In fact, judges causes us to realize that when the voice of the moral law within us has been completely ignored, when everyone does as he or she sees fit, the state will not be able to pass enough laws to maintain moral order. Because when there's anarchy within, there's lawlessness without. And so we come back to asking, besides the starry heavens above us, is there anything within us that might suggest that God is real. You have some great minds like Paul and like Kant and like Collins who might answer that question by saying, we affirm that there is something in our makeup that innately knows the difference between justice and injustice, cruelty and kindness, truth and falsehood. And we would say that has been woven into our fabric by none other than God. By the way, you might want to add the name Alexander Solzhenitsyn to those other names. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Soviet dissident, who through his pen and his voice shone the glaring light of truth on the Soviet gulag system of repression, of destruction, of violence, of damage, of death. Alexander Solzhenitsyn who would write these words. Over half century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of old people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that have befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. 
Since then, says Solzhenitsyn, I have spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I have read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. If we follow that thinking, the truth is simple. God doesn't want to be the boss of you. God wants the best for you. That's why he has created us with the ability to recognize what is good and beautiful and life-giving from what can tear us down and harm and destroy us. Maybe we ought to listen to that voice. The words are not mine, but I can heartily affirm them. Two things cause great admiration and awe the longer I consider them. The starry heavens without and the moral law within. Gracious God, many of us in this room have placed our faith, our trust in you. Others might be struggling, want incredible reasons for belief, and that is good. Let us never minimize their doubts, their questions, but approach them with kindness and humility. Lord, wherever your fingerprints exist, give us eyes to see them. In Jesus' name, amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.